Welcome to Voices from the Bench, a dental laboratory podcast. Send us an email at info at voicesfromthebench.com or look for us on Facebook at Voices from the Bench. Greetings and welcome to episode 141 of Voices from the Bench. My name is Elvis. And my name is Barbara. How's it going, partner? Pretty good. Pretty good in yourself? I am fantastic. Again, it's Friday, waiting for the weekend. It's yeah. a cool 55 degrees here in Florida. Wow, that might be our high today. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I love my weather. So are you starting to see the Christmas end of the year rush? Yes, I am. Yeah. And it's crazy. It's not only does it get busy, but everybody wants it really fast. So yeah, fun, fun. Yeah, and all the employees want extra time off. Yeah, COVID's kind of going a little bit around our building right now. So we've got uh, one, two, three techs off, and including my uh, mill uh, technician for two weeks. So it's it's been really difficult for me this week. I've been a little stressed, needless to say. They were exposed during uh, Thanksgiving and so they were never in the lab, and then that just out for the rest of the two-week period. So, a little bummer. How convenient. No, I'm just mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. But I'm almost through it. It's almost the weekend. I get it. So, they're getting tested, and you guys are making them take the two weeks? Yeah, but they have to have a negative test to come back, so... Hmm. <sighs> I'm hoping for next week. Are tests easy to get in Florida? Yeah. Yeah. Go to Walgreens or, you know, there's some that are immediate and then some you have to wait like two days. But yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty efficient. Yeah. Well, hopefully this vaccine will start coming out in the next couple of weeks. We are a medical manufacturing company, so we should be at the top of the list, if you ask me. Mm. <laughs> Let's go be a guinea pig. There you go. Sorry. <laughs> Makes me a little nervous. Oh, yeah? <laughs> a little bit. I don't know if you remember, but every time this year... There is a best of the dental podcast voting that goes on online. Yes, I do, because you shouted it loud and proud last year. Every year we ask that people head over to dentalpodcast.org, or there's a link on this episode's show notes, and vote for our podcast, Voices from the Bench. What's our podcast again? I believe it's called Voices Voices from the from the Bench. Come on, guys. Let's go. You can actually vote for four different dental podcasts, but I mean, really, why would you? Just scroll down to the bottom. It's alphabetical order, so we're at the end. But this is our chance to show the dental world that dental labs stand out. Let's do it. Yeah, last year, if you remember, we came in third out of over 70 podcasts. Third place is not too shabby, partner. No, it's not too bad. But what helped us was a lot of podcasts were eliminated because of like... Cheating? Yeah, cheating and bot voting where like they'd get thousands of votes within five minutes. So they just got rid of... Yeah, that helped us a lot. But this year, they're doing it again. They got a whole new system so people can't cheat. So we're asking everyone, head over to dentalpodcast.org and vote for Voices from the Bench. Thank you. We love talking to everyone in the industry. We don't care what you do in the industry. If you got a story, we want to hear it. And some of the guests we talk to, we know before we talk to them. And some are people we've never heard of. But both are just as interesting. But when we got the opportunity to have Jim Glidewell on the podcast, we were both pretty excited. To say the least. (laughs) Jim Glidewell has done amazing things over the years, and no matter what you think of the lab Glidewell, Jim is a technician at heart who has built a lab that has set a standard for other labs across the country and probably even the world. Definitely the world. Yeah. Jim comes on the podcast to talk about his early days in the industry and growing it to be the 5,000 plus technician lab that it is today. But the journey was not a planned or easy one. I mean, we seriously talk about so much in this interview, it's really hard to fit it all into this introduction. Jim talks to us about the importance of advertising, how they handle product development, what it took to make monolithic zirconia the go-to restoration that it is today, and he talks about his new book, which comes out this week, called Constant Change. So let's get right to it. 
Join us as we chat with Jim Glidewell. Hey, Barbara, have you heard about Oradent and their new partnership? You mean up 3D, Elvis? Exactly. The new P5 milling machine by Up3D. Is it another private label milling machine on the market? Actually, no. That's the cool thing. Up3D actually manufactures their own mills. Wow, that's awesome. What is the P5 milling machine offering? Well, for starter, the P5 is a 5-axis, efficient, dry mill. All right, so that's super ideal and totally convenient, but what about the quality of the milling? Well, it boasts software that produces high precision and fast milling. It can mill a crown, get this, in 14 minutes. And the tool life yields about 60 to 80 hours of quality restorations. Wow, that must be super expensive software. Do tell. The cam nasting software is included at no additional cost. Come on. That's a super great cost savings for any lab. Budget friendly without compromising any of the performance. All right, so let's talk about price. Well, the funny thing is it retails for only $18,000. Wow, that's a super game changer for labs of all sizes, big and small. Under twenty k, a small lab can now do their own milling instead of outsourcing. But don't forget the medium and larger labs can benefit big time from this too. The Up3D recently opened a home office in California near Oradent. So does that mean the mill ships from California and the remote technical support is also in California? Yes, Barbara, you are correct. Obviously, as (laughs) always, they are both in the United States in Southern California. All you got to do is call our friends over at Oradent, 1-800-422-7373. Or you can visit their website at Oradent.com. We appreciate your support of the podcast, Oradent. Thank you. Voices from the Bench. The Interview. We are super excited today to have on the podcast a guy that really needs no introduction, (laughs) Jim Glidewell. I don't know what you do, sir, but I tend to get boxes in my lab with your name on it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the point. Yeah. (laughs) Jim Glidewell, thank you for coming on the podcast. How are you today, sir? I'm absolutely great. Glad to be here. Awesome. And of course, Barbara joining us as always. Barb, how are you today? Fantastic. Thank you. Let's get going. Yeah. So Jim Glidewell, you obviously, like I said, need no introduction. Everybody in your industry knows who you are. Glidewell. Glidewell Industries. Tell me exactly how Glidewell started. I hear these stories about you starting on a kitchen table back in the 70s. How much of this is true and how much of it is urban legend? <laughs> Actually, I was at Orange Coast College in a dental technician program, and I started making teeth on my kitchen table at home for a local dentist. And before I graduated, though, I had actually moved into his office from my table, and then I started working for, oh, four or five dentists in the area around his office Mm -hmm. in Santa Ana, California. And then one day he came to me and uh, said, hey, I haven't been able to pay the rent. We've got to get out of here. And Uh I said, oh, oh, okay. Where are we going to go? He said, oh, there's no we in this. I don't know where you're going to (laughs) go. I'm getting a job in Los Angeles. And I said, oh, my gosh. I had never actually planned on opening up a dental lab. That hadn't been my high priority. So by Monday morning, I called the local sales guy that kept coming by. And I said, do you know of any little lab I can move into? And he did. He knew of a lab where, uh, again, a guy hadn't paid his rent. He moved (laughs) out. And there was just a few rough benches in there and whatnot. And about I think it was about 900, oh, 450 square feet. That's what it was, wow. 450 square feet. So Monday morning, I was kind of up and running by accident. I swear, if my dentist hadn't have not paid the rent, I think I'd still be his technician. <laughs> yeah, and we're still dear friends. You know, really? Very, very yeah, I was friends. wondering about that. Oh, yeah. Is he still practicing, sending work? Yeah, he's like 83 or 4. I don't know if he sends work. I would, Probably not. I don't know. I kind of doubt it. Yeah, <laughs> I work for so many guys, I lose track of that. So we oh, don't I talk bet. about work, and he lives a ways away. Anyway, that's how I got started. It was really kind of by accident. I'd like you to tell you there was a plan. There was no plan. Yeah, yeah. That's usually some of the best things that happen in life. Yeah. yeah. What were you doing on your kitchen table and, and in this guy's practice? Were you 
PFMs, I was full cast? teaching myself ceramics. Okay. I was teaching myself to do PFMs because in the Orange County in California here, there was only about five ceramics probably in the whole county. Yeah. And we didn't have any classes at school on that. We just knew how to cast gold crowns, set up a denture or something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And our instructor, whom I loved, but he was uh, a denture technician. Yeah. So I decided I had to go to a couple of trade shows. And you know what I learned? Really, I went to a trade show in Anaheim, and Bill de St. Clair ah. was there demonstrating their little tools. And I sit there, and I watched them for like 45 minutes. Okay, I can do that. I can do that. Here's my $100 for the tools where it was. <laughs> and I went home, and I bought a kit of porcelain from a company called Denipore in Garden Grove. They're not around anymore, but they're little cigar tubes with porcelain in them. So I went home, and I started packing porcelain. I actually put porcelain onto a die and tried to pull it off my fingers. Oh. So, <laughs> that, yeah, and it kept crushing. I thought, well, that's yeah. not going to work. <laughs> I mean, it was that basic, that basic. And yeah. uh, uh, within a, two or three months, I was able to make some passable ceramic restorations that the local doctor says, oh, that looks really good. I didn't think so. I've always been a very <laughs> harsh critic of my own business, oh, yeah. my own work, you know. Most technicians are. I've never done a case that I didn't think I couldn't have done it better. I really haven't. Yeah. I just, I'm brutal about that. Yeah. I think you told me that about the um, the designs that you put together, your Jim Glidewell software. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've done that recently. Yeah. And you said the same thing to me when I talked to you. <laughs> I would change this and I would do that. And I think that's the uh, yeah. sign genius is you're never happy you just want to keep going forward and doing better and better yeah but that make you too happy <laughs> no it doesn't <laughs> never satisfied Drive yourself a little crazy <laughs> that's about right never satisfied so then what a year later you opened glidewell and you're the biggest lab in the country is that how it worked was that no was that the na- oh there's something <laughs> yeah it, it was overnight yeah, yeah that's what i thought no you know i think i working one day by myself and i was working i wrote this in that book that we're going to bring up, but yeah. I was working. I was overworked. One of my customers came to me and he said, I'm going to get you some more business. And I mean, I was wor- every day I turned around as another guy at my door saying, I hear you're a ceramist and you know, wow. I'm a dentist. And I had 20 dentists or something within about a month and a half. And you were still working by yourself at this point. I was totally working by myself. And I, yeah. I was doing 40 hour shifts and I would sleep six on a couch and I would work 40 hours again. Oh, I listen to the radio stations, come on here, go off here. Everybody thought you were, and I was killing myself. But in reality, I, I realized that when you're in your 20s, you can work super long hours and you can recover very fast. And when you get to be in your 40s and 50s, uh, you don't recover that fast. So I felt if I Not could. Not so much. Yeah. So I, I was working like three shifts, if you would. And I was able to buy more equipment and better equipment. At the end of the first year, I. By the way, at that point, I had already added about ooh, four people, I guess. But within about three months, somebody called me up. And I'm looking for a job, and I said, I don't need anybody. He says, well, what are you doing working on a Sunday? <laughs> I said, oh, you got a good point. Because yeah. <laughs> so, I'd worked 18 months straight without a day off. And then um, – yeah. And then saving money. So, you know, I had that kind of head start. By the time I was 30, a lot of people thought I had inherited the dental laboratory because at that point it was already a, I don't know, a million and a half dollar lab or something like that. In 1970. Yeah, back in 70, 71, yeah. 71, yeah. Uh, 1975, I turned 30. So by... I was doing pretty good business by then. Yeah, I'd say. But it was just hard work. It, it wasn't that anybody thought I was, uh, you know, a great technician or something, but I was um, able to get the work out on time and, you know, without too much trouble. So that's why you just deliver things on time and for the right price and they keep coming up to you. So were you specializing in um, ceramic PFMs that time? Did you do anything else or was it basically just... Yeah, that was it. I, I was doing, of course, gold crowns and PFMs. And I also taught my that wife at the time, who was a tremendously talented lady, to do ceramics. I taught her and she was way better than I was. Wow. And that came in real handy later on because I remember hiring a, a couple of ceramists and you know, they were short supply, so they would kind of hold it over my head that I, if they walked mm-hmm. out, I was going to have to work really long hours again. And I said, that's okay. You know, my wife will be here in the morning because as soon as I taught her to do it really well, she went home. And uh, <laughs> if somebody did leave, she'd just show up the next morning and yep. you know, as if nothing happened. And, you know, that's a big stumbling block for a lot of small labs. They, they feel like they're held hostage by a couple of their lead people. And they kind of are. Actually. Yeah, <laughs> That's happened to me a whole lot in my career. Definitely. Yeah. If they want 
more money or, you know, kind of more vacations or anything. They kind of, they do really hold you hostage for sure. That's why it's yeah. a great thing. Uh, CAD cam and design and all of the things that we have now, because we've, we've got a little bit of a default. We have a choice, you know? Absolutely. Well, I think too, uh, there was a time when I might've had three or 400 ceramists working in my lab. And uh, wow. when we had the CAD cam world come around, you know, like in 2000, six, seven, when it really started for me. Today, I think we have what you'd call two or three ceramists out of thousands of employees. We just don't have ceramists anymore. Wow. That's insane. Yeah, It's changed. I'm a ceramist too, you know, so nobody really needs my talent anymore. <laughs> but you turned them into something else, right? I mean, you kind of moved them or they morphed into into something. I think the problem with that is that you've got ceramists, you know, they're making $100,000 a year yeah. and they're replaced with CAD CAM people making $30,000 a year. Mm. Yep. Yeah. So that's yeah. kind of an issue. You know, a lot of my people, though, think, thankfully, they were able to move to other places. A lot of them opened their own labs. Yeah. And I'm happy for them. I, I felt really bad about that. You know, when I invented this monolithic, I don't say invented, but when I popularized monolithic zirconia in 2007, it's like letting a genie out of the bottle and you can't put the genie back in again. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'll get to that. 2007, that long ago, huh? It seems like it was yesterday. It's come so far. Yeah, yeah. I want to get back to the point where you realize that you can't be working on the bench as much anymore. You're creating something bigger than just a lab. Yeah, I've been about 1980. I had 45 employees at that time, but I'm still working at the bench making ceramics. Yeah. I was probably doing 15, 18 ceramic crowns plus running the lab. And I had a foot switch on the floor, you know, with a headset. And I'm answering doctor's phone calls at the same oh, time. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, whoa, I, I think I'm reached a tipping point here, you know. Yeah. And that's kind of how I, I just, I had to get off the bench. I don't think any laboratory owner who's still on the bench really is going to grow very much. They just have to come to the conclusion they, they need to get off the bench to really grow. Yeah. And that's a really hard thing to do because I know a lot of ceramists and a lot of managers and they're still doing that dual role and they yeah. like control and they like the communication and, you know, it's just like super hard to give it up. So how did you mentally, emotionally, how did you do it? Well, I'll tell you, it's kind of like, What's a good size laboratory? Is it 15 men or five or three? You know, what, what is the, the right size for a lab? And I, I never thought I had a choice in that. First employee who walked into my office, I realized I was responsible for their careers. Mm. Didn't think like much. But I mean, every day goes by, that person sitting there still doing plaster work or something. And you think after a while, that's just not fair. You know, yeah. not fair to them or their family or whatever. So I've always felt a huge push to make the laboratory larger. To manage a laboratory, too, it's very difficult when you're, say, 12 to 15 people. You're working really hard, yeah. and yet you're still not quite big enough to have an, a human resource department. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you just, it's a difficult size. So I think if you stay down small, three to five people, and then tell people, by the way, I want to be five-man lab. I enjoy being five-man lab or three-man mm -hmm. lab, you know. If that doesn't work for you in your career choice, then I would suggest you move to another place now because I'm going to be this size forever. Don't tell them you're going to grow if you don't grow and if you don't have a yeah. plan to grow. Yeah. yeah. You've got to be honest with everybody because it's their lives you're playing with. You know? Wow. And you can be perfectly successful at a five-person lab. Absolutely, you can. You bet. Absolutely. Yeah. You can have a great life. Great life. Yeah. Huh? You know, how much is too much anyway? I mean, two cars and <laughs> a white picket fence and... That's about all you really need in life to get through it. That's success to me. Yeah, sure. So you had to have eventually said, I need to bring in management to help me. And you had to have surrounded yourself with good people you trusted. Were those people that were already in your lab or did you look outside to help the growth? Good point. I do believe we overlooked the hidden talents in our own office. Really? And that a lot of people could, I mean, it might be a great ceramist, but they could still be a great something else. You know, they could be a, a great HR person or an advertising person or something. So I'm always looking to promote from with inside. And as I've gotten larger, I do have people on staff who tend to want to go outside. And, and I do have a lot of ex-Nobel people. And, but that was the implant area, which I didn't know very well. Mm. And so I had to hire people in that, you know, that knew something about implants. But you know, it's just a good point. I had a guy come on staff. I met him on the beach one day. We were talking. And he said, I hear you lead a... <laughs> you Californians. <laughs> in California, on the beach. And he said, I hear you need a CFO. And I said, I sure do. And 
we took a little trip together and I just watched how he worked with people and how yeah. smooth he was and mm. nice to be. And I was at a boat show and I just watched him be so kind to everybody. I hired him in for the next five years until his passing. He had a motorcycle wreck. Oh. But he hired four or five people that are CFOs, uh, marketing people that I did not hire. He hired them and they've been exceptionally good. They're still with the company after 13 to 15 years. Wow. So I'm very proud of what he had done. Yeah. His name was Rob Grice. And boy, he was my best friend and um, I couldn't get him off motorcycles though. Yeah. 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 After hearing your uh, what you say about people, the one thing that I've always heard about you and your leadership skills is that you respect and, and love your team members and your people. And that really comes through, you know, when you're speaking about that is that, you know, how genuine that is. And I think that's really what's made, you know, you so successful is that you're just such a great person and a great leader and you just respect people and want to see them grow and succeed and make something themselves, which is remarkable. I think that's really important trait if you're going to build a, a large laboratory. I tend to see the perfection in almost everybody and everything. And uh, a lot of people who run operations where they are not very successful, they tend to see the imperfection in their people and they find that really a great manager, a really good manager has to bring out the best in people. That's what a management yeah. skill is all about. Yeah. You can't just say, oh, I, I'm tired of working with this guy. I'm going to get a new person or gal to replace him because I just can't do this anymore. I just keep going back and I say it's a management fault. You know, it's a management failure if your people fail. <laughs> I can't blame it on them. Cannot yeah. blame my failures on my people. And so I'm also probably like a 70%. If you can get 70% of the job right, <laughs> you're okay with me. You know, you don't have to be 100% right. Yeah. So. Interesting. I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but that's... No, it does. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense to me. And I remember when I visited your laboratory a couple of years ago, I left with something that really resonated with me and still does to this day. And I'm sure you'll you'll recall it or maybe you won't, but you said that <laughs> people are like bananas. Once you bruise yep. a banana, you can't really unbruise it. Like it just gets... That's you know, right. And that. So one of your goals was try to not bruise the banana. And I, I use that a lot still to this day. So thank you for that. And it really got me you, how true that is and how hard it is to reverse, you know, that negative psyche once it's inputted into somebody's brain, you know, to change it and make it better again. Yeah. It's a difficult world we live in. You know, I think people always ask me about the stress of running an operation. And I, Barbara, I think I told you this too, when you're out there, that stress is nothing that I ever relate to because I look at people in my plastic department who've been there for 35 years wow. who have six kids at home, you know, living on what, 40,000 a year, 50,000 a year, yeah. whatever. How the heck do they do it? That's yeah. stress. That's yeah. real stress. Yeah. No, I, I have no right to claim stress of any kind at all. I do not sleep. So there's, there's nights when I don't sleep real well when I'm trying to think about don't make a mistake. Don't ever bet the company that would cost them their jobs. You know, hmm. that's the things yeah. I worry about. The people, again. Yeah, yeah. they did. I don't know if you didn't bring it up. Were you going to talk about my COVID experience? Uh, if you oh, want. Oh, yeah, we were. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, the reason I want to bring it up, well, the, the problem with that was that it was like March, my God, I think it was March 23rd, I actually went in the hospital. And uh, the week before that, I, I was at home pretty sick. And then mm -hmm. I went to the hospital. And while I was in the hospital, you know, they did the shutdown. And almost like all the dental offices were shut down. Yeah. And we were having record, record sales going into the middle yeah. of March. I yep. was just shocked. I was like, oh, my yep. God, I can't believe it. What a month we're going to have. And boy, did we have a month. <laughs> it turned out to be a hell of a month. But, but my managers now are looking around. And believe it or not, only three or four knew I was in the hospital. They never shared it with the mm -hmm. uh, people in the labs. And wow. so they had to go through a process of laying off 3,500 employees. Yeah. I think the only way it would have happened is if I was in the hospital because I would have never allowed it to happen. Oh, yeah. It drove me crazy I when I found out about it. And I had no knowledge that it happened for all, over two weeks because when you're in the hospital, they quarantine you. So yeah. you don't have a phone. I didn't have a telephone. I didn't have anything where I was at. Ugh. I had a phone for a little while and the battery went dead the next day, you know, and yeah. no charger. And then you're next thing, you're intubated, which is another torture instrument. Yeah. So that's just a horrible thing. But. I, I got through it. You know, I lost 32 pounds in 14 days. And wow. that'll show you the stress. That's real stress. Right that there. is stress. <laughs> yeah. 
But when I was in there, I worried about my employees so much and then my family too, because I have four fairly young children. You know, my kids are just 10 through 16. Yeah. And even though I'm 75 years old, I'm supposed to be retired, I think, but nobody <laughs> wants me to retire. That's not going to happen. <laughs> no, I don't. What do you think it, this it is, just, Europe? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. I, I think about Bob Ganley all the time and what a great guy he was. And we had to retire from Ivo Clark. And I'm thinking, what the heck? It's a good thing I'm not in Europe. Hell yeah. There's there's a lot of brain power to be, uh, to be had after 65. Let me tell you, I see it all the time with my father. It's amazing. That's right. I remember him well. You know, Pilots are the same way. You know, the uh, airline pilots ride in the left seat after the age of 62. Hmm. You know, those guys still at age 62, they know how to fly a plane. They're very, very good at it. And so what do you want to do? Replace them with a 25-year-old who doesn't have the experience? Exactly. Who learned it from a video game? No, thank you. Mm -hmm. There you go. There you go. (laughs) So are you having any residual effects from COVID? I'm fairly weak, but uh, I'm actually, I'm back out. I mean, I'm about 90% right now, which is fine. Yeah, scary stuff. Yeah. Did you have any cases was, within the lab? Yeah, we've had quite a few. I imagine. We're never lab-oriented, though. They, they didn't originate in the dental no, lab. Every one of them we chased down, and we never had anybody get sick in the laboratory. We did have one unfortunate death from COVID, but it was uh, one of my longtime employees got in a car wreck. His wife passed away from the car wreck. He was seriously injured. Then he gets COVID. Oh, wow. Wow. It's just, you know, yeah. this on this, you know. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, he'd been with me over 30 years and uh, dearly missed. Sure. And that's wow. the other problem. When you run a laboratory our size and for that long, you have deaths to contend with. People, it's a natural part yeah. of our life. People die. And so you end up going to funerals and you think, wow, did I do them right? You know, did I, yeah. did I yeah. do right by that person? Well, if they were there for 30-some-odd years, something was right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. You mentioned earlier that you didn't create zirconia, but you brought it to the norm. Talk about that. I mean, I think we heard Dent Supply actually came out with the first zirconia product, but it was really Glidewell that made the monolithic crown the popular product, the hammer, all that. It all is embedded in our minds. Yep. What was that process like? Well, I think all of us who kind of invent things are standing on the shoulders of those before us who, of course, you know, yeah. develop certain parts of things. And so, you know, when we had the lava material come out, dense supply material, we're making copings. Yep. I kept thinking, well, if the stuff is that strong, the weakest thing we're doing is putting porcelain on top mm-hmm. of it. You know, porcelain is 100 megapascal. And these, well, actually, you know, if you get down to Ceramco, it's like 82 to 85 megapascal. And so, you, you know, it fractured fairly easily. And, uh, we all run into patients who've got broken teeth in their mouth. And so I thought, let me try to make, well, actually, my first idea with a white crown in a mouth is better than a gold crown. I, thought, I remember yeah, that. that. <laughs> okay, yep. that, that works for me, except <laughs> when we put them in the mouth. <laughs> so we put some white zirconia in the mouth. You know, I have my own dental offices there that I do research with. Uh-huh. So we have a lot of patients that volunteer up off the work floor, you know, my employees. Yeah, getting paid. Sometimes yeah, it takes, I get it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it takes two other people to drag them into the dental chair, <laughs> but they're called volunteers. Okay? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so we put a couple of three of these white crowns in the mouth and, oh, they look worse than gold. Gold kind of goes away, but if you put a pure white crown in the back of somebody's mouth, it looked like a great big piece of gum or something in yep. there. Yeah, it it's like a away. flashlight. Yeah. Yeah. So it was so bad. My doctor says, we're not doing those anymore. And my research guy says, yeah, this is horrible. So about a year later, I think it was 2006 or, you know, by 2007, we finally, I convinced my lead guy to learn how to shade these things down. And so we just kept working on it, working on it, you know, and then uh, we came up with a different method of making zirconia called colloidal deposition, which most zirconia is pressed which is, by the way, not a bad way to go. Sure. Colloidal is very difficult, very expensive. But it's the process that we were using to make the what we call the Bruxer crown. And that was popular. And, of course, one of the reasons it got popular is because we have a big, big advertising operation. And I would advise any laboratory, learn how to advertise. And when you introduced me 
on this program, you said, this is Glidewell, he needs no introduction. Yeah. That's only because I've been putting my name in front of people for the last 35, 40 years. You know? yeah, it's sure. not exactly like I, I made the world's best crown, like you know, you had Don Cornell on last time. Don Cornell, yeah. w- Willie Geller, those guys, they do perfect work. Yeah. Glidewell, Jim Glidewell does not do perfect work. <laughs> so you don't know the name Glidewell because of my technology. You know it from marketing and sales. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, true. I hate to admit that. I, I'm, I was hoping, you know, you know, you like my hair or something like that. No, <laughs> you know, you, you know you, it's how you get your name out there just through marketing. And I went to a course one time on advertising, one of those Fred Pryor $99 seminars. Yeah. And when it was over with, I knew quite a bit. I knew that I didn't know very much, but I also went up to the, to the instructor who had, had about 300 people in this huge audience. And I said, how'd you like to go to work for me? He says, I can't do that, but I'll work for you for two weeks or three weeks. Hmm. And so I hired this guy. His name was Jacob Weisberg. Never forget him. Back in the uh, mid-70s. I knew how to do a little print ad starting about 1978. But Jacob came on board and taught me how to do magazine ads, set, set up a page so that it was readable, mm-hmm. what type of picture to put in, what kind of print to use, yeah. how many different type styles to use. So hmm. I developed all that from Jacob. So. You can congratulate me on my knowledge of zirconia and also of advertising. And God, I, I can't I can't claim ownership of any of it. Sure. Is he the guy that told you to mail three mailers to every dental office every week? Three. <laughs> 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 well, you know, here's the thing. If you're advertising, every year we know that 20% of all dentists will change laboratories. Every year. Yeah, yeah I know. One out of five dentists will change labs. So... If your ad gets there the day they got upset with their lab, you yeah, have yeah. that's about what it is. And you got a one in five chance of picking up that dentist. Because if you ask the average dentist, give me the name of laboratories in your area, they can only think of three to five. Yeah. They don't mm-hmm. know the name of it. But if you put your name in there, you you now have your name in the hat to be one of the five people he chooses. Oh, sure. A lot of it is timing. Absolutely. You call an yeah. office at the right time. They're like, oh, we were just having a conversation about how bad our lab is. Boom. Well, let me give your audience, too, another little tip here is that I was in a study group called the Tech Organization, which is kind of like an MBA program. And one of the guys says, well, what is your marketing budget? And I looked at him. And I says, what's a budget? Yeah. <laughs> like, what do you mean by what's a budget? He says, you know, how much do you set aside for marketing advertising every year? And I said, I don't set anything aside. I just use what's left over. If I got money left over, I put it into marketing everything. He says, well, you need to establish a budget. And uh, so I did. I established a budget of 6%. And that was about the same time I hired Jim Chuck to be the national marketing manager, which is one of the best things I ever did. I said, Jim, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to give you a 6% budget to advertise with. This is going to be your marketing budget, you know? And um, he said, that works. He says, how are you going to pay for it? And I says, I'm going to raise my prices 6%. (laughs) I, you know, yeah. forget this spending what's left over. I'm going to raise my price to 6%. I'm going to make the dentist pay for my advertising. Huh. Nice. Is it still the same percentage? No, it's more like 10. Okay, interesting. And actually, it's too much anymore because we're so large. 10% of our sales is unheard of money. So, no, yeah. it's yeah. probably dropping down a little bit. I haven't asked I yeah. haven't asked the CFO exactly what it is. Sure. So, I already know the answer to this, but do you guys track in terms of the percentage that you're you're spending on marketing in terms of how many new clients you get and you know how does that what does that look like i'm sure you do track it we sure do barbara we track it very closely and today the direct mail market is really crowded with people very very crowded <laughs> yeah. everybody's looked at my ads they said hey we can do that and they're right they can oh, do yeah. that yeah yeah so i think every doctor's mail inbox is going there but i warn you for the people that think that all the social media is the place to go, that can get real expensive. At this yeah. point, my direct mail pieces are producing customers a lower cost than social media. <laughs> By two to one, in fact, two to one easily. Yeah. I mean, we all think, oh, social media. You know, everybody thinks social media is the way to go. Well, we've been doing that for a couple of years now. And every time I look at the numbers, I say, oh, my God, I don't know why we're putting any money in, in there. <laughs> it costs a lot to make sure your ads are placed in the right spot. Yeah. Facebook appreciates it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So back to Bruxer and Zirconia, when did you lean on the decision or decide to open it up to the dental laboratory industry to be able to sell Bruxer and, and actually sell it to them? 
Well, it was very expensive to make Bruxure. I had to buy these big presses, ball mills, all sorts of things. You know, we buy our powder from Toso at the time, still do. But uh, we were using this Toso material, which is a little on the expensive side. Mm-hmm. I decided to get some of our costs back by selling it to other laboratories. So we were new to the game at the time. Mm-hmm. The zirconia was new. A lot of laboratories started signing up to buy zirconia because they didn't have any other choices, really. Today, you've got really good other people like Sage Max, which now has belonged to uh, Ivoclar yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, Arjun. Sure. Arjun came out with some material that, frankly, is really good. I went to that Vision 21 meeting in Las Vegas, and I saw this guy put this program on. I said, how the heck did these guys come up with that grade of material this fast? Uh, and yeah. I, I'm looking at it, and I said, it really was. It's really, really a nice product. So our sales dropped dramatically. I mean, I'll give you some numbers. We were doing a million and a half a month of zirconia sales to laboratories. And it dropped way, way down to like 300,000 or something. So that wasn't one of my better ideas. (laughs) 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 You know, I I don't blame the labs. Actually, what happened was we turned the marketing over to Shine. Shine already had like five different materials they were selling. So ours just took a back seat. Yeah. I think at the time... We're not today, but we were the most expensive for the uh, zirconias. I set the price and everybody else came in behind me and below me. So I don't blame them. No, that's just the way things go. But your brand product name became the name to describe them all. (laughs) It's kind of like Kleenex and tissue paper. Bruxer is kind of like everything, <laughs> even though it's not all yeah. Bruxer brand. You know, the funny thing about Bruxer is that Jim Shuck, the marketing manager, he came up with the name and I told him every time I see him even, I said, that's the worst damn name I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. There's a town out here in California called Oxnard, and the town council decided to use the name Oxnard, and it says, not just another pretty name. <laughs> that is cute. That is cute. So that's what Bruxer is, not just a pretty name. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, it changed the way we do business. I'll tell you what, you know, you talk yeah. about, having a, a Bruxer crown way back then and being super bright. And now, I mean, you know, you can put it against anything ceramic and it looks super vital and beautiful and they have multi-layer and this and that. And it's come yeah. a long, long way. Yeah, it really has. And the uh, everybody's done a good job with making it even better. And then when we started adding yttria to it, all of a sudden it starts to look like Emacs, you know, mm-hmm. I and mean, it's really, really yeah. good. And I did say something on another time about Emacs. Emacs became a huge product for us. And the first time I saw Emacs in the mouth, I was shocked at how good it looked. Still does. Sure. And Ivoclar markets that to dentists and they market it heavily. And there's a lot of dentists out there that have never had any problem with with Emacs and laboratories should continue to carry that as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yeah. Zirconia has the ability to replace Emacs. It does. But if I'm a laboratory, you've got to keep Emacs in your product mix that's all i'm doing right now i uh i i'm driving the aesthetics of it and you know we we do zirconia of course but uh um, sure. we still do uh all our smile designs in in emacs and yeah. uh zirconia for those that need it but yeah i agree you bet are you still doing a large percentage of lithium desilicate uh no we're we're down 40 percent lithium desilicate yeah i mean we're frankly doing almost ten thousand units a week wow. and uh <sighs> i think we're down in the six thousand unit area right now but that's just because zirconia took up the slack in certain sure. areas. So, you know, that's just to be expected. It needed to. Yeah. You've got to have that strength on the lingual for a lot of those cases. It's just better for the patient. So, it's a good, good point. The you. lingual, when you get a crown with a doctors never take much off the lingual side. So, you got these real thin linguals, you know. You yeah. betcha, you, Barbara. You're yeah. Right. Are you guys pressing those Emaxes or are you milling all of them? We don't mill any of them. And, really? Uh, that's be, surprising. Well, one day. I walked into my department, my Emacs department, and I saw two benches and there were like 16 people. And I asked the guy, what do those 16 people do? He says, they fix margins. <laughs> I said, what do you mean yep. fix margins? Well, you use an MCXL to mill Emacs. Yeah. You're going to have a lot of chip margins. Okay. So we started cherry picking the cases. Yeah. That one could be milled. No, those, that couldn't be milled. So we started pressing half. We also started milling half. That was how that went. And now you yeah. press all of it. Uh, no, we're 100% pressing. Yeah, we just gave up on it. That is crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. Not what I expected. I went back in and I was like, I want to mill everything. 
I don't want to press anything. I really want to just drive it, drive it, drive it. And two months later, my material costs are through the roof and my instrument costs is through the roof and I'm going back to pressing. Yeah. But it is definitely super expensive and the cost to be able to, uh, you know, mill wax and then press it. It is just, you just get so much more also out of the material that. I think so too. I think your material costs go down with pressing. Yeah. It was really the milling, which was the problem for me to go to pressing. It wasn't the cost of it, but cost is a a benefit. Yep. Sure. Those burrs get expensive. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if you guys know this, but people accuse me of being too vertically integrated, (laughs) but we not only make implants and make our own zirconia, we make our own lithium disilicate glass, you know, called obsidian. Mm-hmm. We don't really sell that to anybody. We just use it internally. And I set the CT on when I developed this. It was all developed out in Florida, too, by the way. Cool. When I did the CT on it, I put it up around 13, which you can put it on metal then. So I put lithium on metal, which you cannot do with uh, Emacs because mm-hmm. it's only 11.2 or 3, something like that yep. on the CT scale. Yep. So anyway, I don't use any porcelain at all anymore. There's no porcelain. We do PFMs, but we use it with lithium. So then we've got a 300, 350 megapascal strength of the porcelain on there. And, oh, they just don't come back. Wow. They just yeah. keep coming back. <laughs> yeah. I don't get it back anymore. I wish we could have perfected Preston Metal. I tried like hell. Yeah. It just wasn't in the cards for us. Well, I'll tell you, too, with us, we can put porcelain on almost any kind of metal in a way. But when we got to lithium, it got real narrow. And Argent makes a very nice metal for us right now. A palladium alloy. Hmm. They make mm-hmm. a very nice one. I was going to ask you about that, about your metal... PFMs. Gotta have it. <laughs> You're not casting at all. Very little. Very, Very little, little casting. Yeah. Oh, wait a second. Wait a second. I know where you're going with that. Yeah, we have SLM. We're doing selective laser centering. You know, uh-huh. we do. A, we got a bunch of those lasers there. Those we print almost everything anymore. Our metal frames. Oh, you're doing wow. them yourself. Interesting. Yeah, we print our own frames. Wow. Oh, you mean Argent prints? I know. I hear Argent's got a whole printing operation yeah. down there. But no, we actually buy our palladium powder from Argent and we put it into our uh, our comp US. So we print everything. Unbelievable. That's awesome. I forgot about that. <laughs> I'm sitting here right now. Yeah, you're right. I, I forgot we do it all. And you know, hey, you will not realize about printing of partial frames. Half the remakes disappeared when we started printing partial frames. Really? Half. Absolutely. We have two big printers today and we're waiting for a third and a fourth one because we have too much volume and we need to, uh, we still can't print all of ours. We're having to cast some, but soon we'll never ever cast again in partial frames. And what do you attribute that to? What? Uh, I call it the old whispering game. Engineers call it stack up error. When you pour a model, then you make a duplicate model. You're getting Mm -hmm. a little bit of error between the model and the duplicate model. Then you put wax on it. And you invest it, and you've got four or five areas where a stack-up error occurs. Everything's moving. Yeah, everything's moving a little bit. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, from the outside of your second molar to your other second molar, it averages 66 millimeters. You'd get a little bit of error in there, and that 66 millimeters will not fit in the mouth. Wow. Sure, yeah. No, we're really believers in it. What do you guys use for design software? Is it all three-shape? Is it all Glidewell? Come on, Elvis. I'm curious. Well... No, I I do. Uh, no, I use a lot of three shape in partials, removables, mm-hmm. uh, implants. Uh, everything else is my own. I it's write your my own. own I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. How yeah. did that come about? Well, I was inventing an intraoral scanner. Started in a, about two thousand five or six, I think. It was down in San Diego. It was called IOS, which meant intraoral scanning. Yeah. And I just got. I loaned the people some money, and within a few months, a VC company is going to buy it out. They didn't buy it out. So now the money that I had loaned, to save that money, I started giving them operating cash. Mm, wow. <laughs> Fast forward about six or seven years, and I'm down at $18 million, <laughs> and the, the product is not going to sell. So now you got a bad product. you got $18 million worth of research. Wow. And uh, my CFO says, well, at least we got a write-off. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm Irish. <laughs> I'm Irish. I don't want to hear, hear about a write-off. <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, had to close the company down. But at the same time, we were developing a, our own software over in uh, Moscow. We ended up with uh, over 70 software programmers on staff writing our own CAD CAM software. Now, we're writing CAD software, but I didn't realize that the CAM software was already there. So one day I said something to one of the designers. Oh, no, we've got CAM software. I said, really? <laughs> so we have our own completely our own CAD CAM software today. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, and it's got millions. I mean, I'm going to say it's an investment of 
in excess of 30 below $50 million, but just somewhere like that. Jeez. Well, for as many uh, three-shaped design licenses you would have to buy, it's probably a pretty good deal. Yeah. Well, I, I think if you went back and looked at it, you'd say no. I, oh, I mean, okay. I would think people should just stay with three-shape or, you know, Medit or whatever, whatever software they're using today. You don't want to write your own software. Oh, no, There's no, no way no, I can no. – yeah. yeah. Well, because yeah. my software costs – I'm, I'm going to say $40 million, Wow. Probably $40 million. Wow. I mean – can That's I show amazing. you how that pencils out? I really can't. I mean, I wouldn't encourage anybody to do what we did. No. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> but it's imagine. just this thing I do about, well, you know what it is? I really wanted something that I could depend on that I ran myself. If you've got three-shaped licenses and someday, you know, your dongles don't work or something and all your designs go down, which happened to us several times, mm-hmm. I said, I can't rely on this anymore. I don't know what's going on in Belgium, but I need my software to be working. Yeah. So that was a problem for us. I was getting the point where it was, just not working correctly. Sure. It's control. Absolutely. And that when, no, just and, control. Yeah. That scale, you have to be in control. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, that's what I see. Yeah. 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 Makes perfect sense. So one of the reasons you're actually on the podcast, other than we've always wanted you on is you got a book coming out. Constant. Yeah. Constant change coming out on December 8th. What got you into wanting to write a book? Well, the name kind of indicates what it is. It's called constant change because when you know you're screwing up, you better change. (laughs) (laughs) You better change something. So I'm constantly changing because I'm constantly screwing up. But (laughs) from 3M Corporation, I learned from them. They said every three years, you got to have 25% of your sales coming from a product you didn't have today. Interesting. I thought, huh, what does that mean? You know, so I'm thinking about that because all of us, in our industry, are mainly waiting for a vendor, be it you, you pick them out. I mean, Dent Supply, Ivo Clar, whatever. Yeah. They all have these products they want you to buy that put about 25 bucks of their material on your invoice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I said, boy, that's when I started doing my own materials research and whatnot. But I decided that I have to start changing and coming up with ideas that work for us and not necessarily work for the vendors. Mm-hmm. So that's why we have kind of transcended what normal laboratories think they are. Are we really a dental lab anymore? If you look at it, we make our own materials. We make our own implants. We make uh, over 800 different parts in our uh, our machine shop wow. that are implant wow. parts. But if you only had one line of implants, let's say you're Nobel, you don't have to have 800 parts. But when you're making parts that go onto everybody else's implants, uh-huh. and there's over 100 implant restoration types out there, then you have to make parts for all of those. Now, all of a sudden, you got to have 800. Yeah. Oh my it's way over 800, by the way. I'm oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's like twelve or 1,300 pieces we actually make. Different screw for every system, every size, yeah. every everything. Yeah. Well, think about <laughs> the retail cost on a, let's say, a Nobel screw is like 60 bucks. Yeah. They don't sell them for 60. There's all sorts of little markdowns and all that. But, you know, you, I make screws. I make yep. the same screw they do. I make, I use the same machines they use. It mm-hmm. costs me two bucks to make a screw. <laughs> wow. Two bucks. Awesome. So, I mean, I understand why... They've got venture capital people that want to keep pushing that, you know, and making a lot of money for their stockholders. But we as lab guys have got to fight back sometimes. Yeah. And that's what I did. I mean, if somebody wants a screw from us, they're like 10 bucks. I know. I love that. You know, they're 10 bucks. So. Yeah. It's freaking awesome. It helps me. If, if I get income like that, it helps me offset my costs also in my own factory there. But if you saw our imp- you know, Barbara, you've seen it, but most people haven't. We have a we use Tornos Deco machines to make our parts, which is exactly what everybody else uses. Yeah. They're very expensive. And we have highly, highly experienced people. I shouldn't say that. But we have uh, – uh, what I'm saying is that most of my employees came from another implant company. Oh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. That, yeah. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. They came from another <laughs> implant company that was only located about 10 miles away from my office. <laughs> It was a bad idea for them to open that company right there. <laughs> Sorry about your luck. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thanks for the employee pool. <laughs> That's about right. You know? So who knows how to run a Tornos Deco machine? I do. Yeah, okay. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Come, Come on, on over, over here. <laughs> yeah. And of course, I have many, many implant people on staff that we're all marketing or, you know, doing a good job. So Yeah. But that's a tough market, right? Today, you know, like Nobel and Strauman kind of own the oral surgery part of it. And most general practitioners still aren't doing implants. So Nobel and Strauman have a lock on it. And they'll have a lock for a long time. Yeah. yeah. The rest of us, there's people like me that make them. There's another hundred companies out there all around the world. 
we're all basically the same, whether you're the big ones or the little ones, everybody's making, you know, FDA approved titanium parts. Yeah. So every once in a while I'll see one I don't care for, an implant I don't like, but my, by and large, I think they're all pretty darn good. Yeah. Of course, mine's the best. Of course. Oh, I get, of course. <laughs> yeah. I'm not biased at all, Lita. I'm not biased. Yeah. <laughs> so back to the book, what is it? Constant change. How do you, I mean, so you've done a whole lot in your life, but how do you write a book? Like, you know, who inspired you? Obviously you inspired yourself, but did you sit down with somebody that kind of helped you walk through that process? No, I, I actually wrote the book myself. I actually wrote the entire book myself. It took about, I don't know, four or five months of part-time. But also when I'm driving down the road today, if I have a good idea, I put it into my iPhone, you know, mm. under notes. Yeah. And yeah. so when I went to write a book, I just downloaded everything I've been remembering and uh, I put it all together in book form. Then I had employees of mine and, uh, that wanted me to write a book. Several of them were just, when are you going to write the book? You know, and I keep thinking about what? <laughs> Everybody thinks that Glidewell knows more about the dental lab business than most people do. And I always look at it and says, no, I, I don't. I must make better decisions somehow. And if I wrote it all down in a book, maybe somebody can go through there and figure out how the heck that lab got that big. I mean, we got over 5,000 employees. I mean, where, how do you do that? You know, yeah. especially in this industry, where do you get 5,000? We were before COVID, we were 5,087 or something like that. Wow. And like, how does that happen? Well, if you read the book, it's in there, and I think in my foreword, I said, "Guys, I don't know how it works either. Help me out. I mean, you know, <laughs> help me find something." Yeah, there's a disclaimer here. I'm not. I'm going to tell you everything I know and everything I think about how to run a business. It's all in that book. And pick out the parts that you like and disregard the others. You know. And you're still in pretty much full control. I mean, you still go in every day, so you still have fresh yeah. ideas and you still have vision, and you're still. Uh, I guess what I would like to say is hands-on, right? I mean, you're still full-time. I'm very hands-on. Yeah. And I still get out and on purpose, I'll walk the floor. You know, yeah. I, Barbara, you've seen I have five big buildings out there full yep. of people. And, and I walk the floor. It's kind of like waving the flag, walk around, smiling at people, yeah. telling them, you know, you're doing great and all that. I never say mm -hmm. a negative word. I never, never have anything negative. Except if I see a light bulb out or something that I'll... Yeah. Ask somebody, yeah. hey, please fix that light bulb or something yeah. like that. But I never say a negative word to any employees. That's just isn't my style. So, And everybody's watching you. <laughs> well, you know, people don't realize that. But when, yeah. you know, one of my managers had a habit of walking around with a frown on his face. And I'd say, you know what? Your employees watch you. They watch everything you do. Mm -hmm. You've got to have a smile on your face every day. Uh, or yeah. they think we're all going out of business and that their job's not secure. Mm. That's so true. Cause I remember you told me that and I started yeah. doing self check, you know, when I walked yeah. the laboratory, what is my persona? What kind of vibe am I putting out? And I really genuinely, no matter what's going on in my personal yeah. or anything, I, when I walk in that door, man, I am on and positive. And I think it really, really helps the the whole morale and the whole vibe. You know, when you drive in your parking lot in the morning and you're about to get out of your car, you say, here we go. And you put a yep. smile on your face <laughs> and you walk through that door. And that's the attitude you've got to have. If you yep. let things drag you down and you got a frown on your face, you've got everybody worried. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So true. Yeah. Or too many doors closed or you're stressed about something and they just take it off and they're just running with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now we have to walk around and tell everybody we have a smile on our face because of the masks. <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny point, actually. I didn't think about that. I didn't either, Barbara. You're, I forgot about that. <laughs> He's the smart one. I had an employee tell me last week that they can't tell my mood by my eyes. <laughs> so I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Wink more? I don't know. <laughs> I think you can see people that are smiling with their eyes, though. Yeah, I think most people do. Apparently, I'm just stagnant in my eyes, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I find myself doing is I have my head going up and down like, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm smiling and I'm saying yes, and they see the head going up and down. If my head went left to right, that would be no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. That's a very good point. I must agree. Yeah. I'm going to send you a picture I took last week with the Voices of the Bench mask on, and I damn well know it looks like I'm smiling, so I'll send you that. <laughs> You're right. You know, Barbara... Barbara, I wanted to ask you a question while we're at, at this, if you don't mind, no. being as you've been involved in the NADL so much and all. The CDT program, what is a technician today that never waxes anything, never packs porcelain? All he does is a CAD CAM technician. 
Yeah. What are we going to do? They're developing a, a program for that right now. They've gone digital. They've gone hands-on. You can actually take the test remotely. They've redesigned all of the questions and made a lot of them digital. And they have made just huge advancements. I'm so proud of them. But yeah, that's absolutely something that they're going to be working on in the next year or two. Well, you know, I appreciate that. And I think back in 1970, when I first opened my doors, there were 17,000, give or take, laboratories in the United States, about 17,000. Today, there's closer to 7,000, maybe yeah. a little less. Yeah. And as we see these machines come online, I only see a decrease in the number of laboratories because I think what we've done here with mechanization is we're making price points more and more important. The prices yeah. are starting to drop, yeah. all because of mechanization. Yeah. Well, I do know that the NBC is big on saying that the digital aspect is a tool. So the what you're producing is still the same to get your CDT. It's just how you produce it. Do you hand wax it? Do you design it? Yeah. They're just using it as a tool, but they're still making the requirements the same. Yeah. You can actually design it and bring in a, a zirconia frame versus a metal frame. So yeah, the test is definitely advancing, but for sure, there are definitely a lot of requests for a CAD CAM exam. They're going to be moving forward with that soon. So. Okay. Very, very good. Yeah, How many CDTs do you have at Glidewell? Is that is that a big thing you promote? Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, we do all the time. We pay our people to take the test. We nice. give them a bonus for mm-hmm. taking the test. You know? Nice. How many exactly? I really don't know. 175, a couple mm-hmm. hundred maybe. Yeah. It might even be 300. I frankly don't know. Yeah. yeah. But you still have yours and it's still yeah. current, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Which shows you a hole in the system, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee you if you sat down, you could still do every one of those skills. <laughs> yeah. And occasionally yeah. I do. I sit down and do drawings for people or I'll sit down and do some yeah. carvings and for some reason, they all gather around. Let's see yeah. what he's going to do, you know, and, and I seem to get through it okay. <laughs> so I was going to ask you that. You seriously pick up a handpiece quite often. Well, up until about five years, three years ago, I had a handpiece at my desk. Really? Yeah, and a glazing, a little glazing oven there because I was playing with colors all the time. My research people would tell me one thing. I said, oh, hey, let me try that out. So I would sit there yeah. and do it myself. So, no, I always had a, a handpiece electric. I didn't have a, you know, a big belt-driven one, but I had sure. a yeah. handpiece there and Done a lot of that. That's cool. Well, I made it, you know, a good 100,000 crowns before I realized I needed to get up from the bench and manage. That's probably about 100,000. And then I still did crowns after that. But that would have been about it. Yeah, but, you know, it's cool because you you obviously love it. You know, I, I don't think we do anything that we don't love. And I think just that artistic side of you every now and again needs to sit down and do it just because you enjoy it. Yeah, thank you, Barbara. I have people tell me that I was a really, really good technician, and I have always disagreed with that. I think <laughs> I was a good, I mean, I was a good technician. I'm as early into the ceramics game because in the 1970s, porcelain fused metal was starting to really take off. Yeah. See, before that, when I started in 67, it was acrylics, you know, dial R, mm-hmm. diamond D. Wow. There were several materials out there that come from that time because we were not doing porcelain fused metal. Ceramica was really was kind of started in 1952, but wasn't come out as a full product called Ceramco. Before it was that, before that, it was called Permadent, I think, in 1952. And then by 1962, they called it Ceramco. Wow. But it was slow to take off. There weren't no ceramics around to do it. You got a material here that nobody knows yeah. how to use, you know? Yeah. And so it started that way. There's some great old history back there. Heck yeah. You must have quite the mini museum set up at Glidewell. With all the, we have uh, quite a few old things. Yeah, my yeah. original furnace and everything. The original furnace. You I still, still have, have mine. <laughs> Do you? Yeah, mine from 1967. <laughs> you ceramics. You yeah. guys are so weird. Yeah, we are a little quirky. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're we're just better than everybody else. Touche, <laughs> touche. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious yeah i say that with humility of course yes. <laughs> of course yeah of course the worst line i ever had was when i was speaking in chicago I, i'd always say I, i'd say are there any denture technicians in the audience and a few hands would go up i said okay i'll talk very slowly <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> see now i think that's funny but they don't <laughs> yeah no <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah. That's great. So what's next for Jim Glidewell and Glidewell? What's on the horizon for you guys? I think one of the things we're focusing on today would be uh, computer tomography, <laughs> scanning impressions, you know, things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That we're uh, also chair side dental operations. We make machines that go into a dental office that make a crown in one hour. Mm. 
remember, I could vote for things that do things for me and my company and all that that benefit on a personal level. But if you really want to help a dentist or a patient, you've got to help them come up with products and materials that help the patient. Mm-hmm. And a one-hour crown with the right software and zirconia is a pretty good crown. Now, we make one that goes in the mouth called Bruxer Now, and uh, it's fully centered. Obviously, it burns up a burr every time it's used, so we have to send a block out. It has to go out with a burr. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, we're doing a lot of those right now. We're sending them out. They're hard to make. The machines aren't hard for us. We're really good at making machines, but we, uh, yeah. and we do those right there in California. Hmm. Awesome. A lot of people ask, you know, well, aren't you putting yourself out of business? And, well, I don't know. Life means you have to do the best thing for the most people, and you got to take care of patients, too. Yeah. yeah. It's funny that you asked yourself that question because, you know, it's a sore subject. Yeah. You know, it's putting the crowns in the dental chair, especially coming from a lab yeah. that relies on getting work from the dental chair. Yeah. yeah. Well, I will tell you, though, too, as you've seen in your own laboratories, the intraoral scanning is just taking off. Yeah. yeah. It's unbelievable. Sure. So they've got those intraoral scanners, and that means that they don't have to do model and die work anymore. They're going to start doing chair side work. It's just the evolution of it. Yes, just an evolutionary thing. I bet you you guys get a ton of scans in. We do. But since 19, when did we start getting on? We started really measuring about 2010, 2012. We started seeing some CEREC scans come in and all that. Today, our biggest scanners are iTero, CEREC. Third place would be Trios. Medit would yeah. be fifth. The 3M scanner. Oops, slips my mind right now. But Oh, yeah. Uh... Wow. Uh, yes, the 3M scanner. Well, we're ceramics. We can't remember everything. I know. I'm, like, I don't, yeah. I'm not feeling you guys. I, I don't know what it is, so I'm out. E4D? No. No, uh, we don't get hardly any E4Ds. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's old. I don't know. Yeah. No worries. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You'll edit that one out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> Well, we've easily reached an hour, Jim. That was great. Thank you. Very good, buddy. We super appreciate you coming on the podcast. I I love your story. No matter what a lab will think about Glidewell, positive or negative, you've done wonderful things for the industry, changed dentistry, and it's something to be proud of. Well, thank you. I always think the laboratory industry views us as the evil empire, and yet we don't think of themselves out at all. We're just building careers for our employees. Yeah. Yeah. And we certainly don't go out to do any damage in any area at all. Yeah. And I want to personally thank both of you, Barbara and and Elvis. I think you guys are doing a great job. Thank you very, very, very much. Thank you. Oh, we appreciate that. You just need to make it mandatory listening of every employee. (laughs) Well, yeah, he's always working. Well, certainly. (laughs) (laughs) You got to, you got to. Yeah. <laughs> we want our name to be as known as Glidewell. That's okay. what we're going for. Every mailbox, four <laughs> times a week. And you know, truthfully, I think that in the future we're going to set up tours of our facility in California on a regular basis, whether it's a Friday or a Monday or something. You know, awesome. it makes it easier for people who want to come out and where we could tour. You know, twenty, thirty people at a time nice. through the company. And we don't mind that at all. Sure. The amount of things I sell to dental labs doesn't amount to 2% or 1% of what we do. So we're not trying yeah. to build that up at all. That's We're going to let everybody else have that business. But we just want to share uh, share with people yeah. so that they can seek a higher level of what they're even they're doing. And maybe it'll benefit their employees and benefit their doctors and patients. Awesome. That's good. I'd love to check out the facilities. You I mean, bet. as soon as COVID allows it, heck yeah, I'd love yeah. to check it out. And we'll take you on a boat trip. Take you on a boat trip, right, Barbara? There you go. Yes, absolutely. A cruise of the harbor. <laughs> yeah, I'm in. Nice. All righty. All, All right. Yeah, yeah we got to wrap this up. Again, Constant Change, the book by Jim Glidewell, out on December 8th. Pre-order it everywhere you can get books. I'm going to check it out. I don't Me really too. read a lot these days, but I want to read this. It hits home to what we do, and I think it's be an interesting read, so I'm looking forward to it. Well, Elvis, are you a denture guy? He's a dork. <laughs> I am not. I'm not a denture guy. I'm not a porcelain guy. I'm a lab guy. Yeah, yeah. Very good. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jim. We appreciate you. it. You take care. All right. Have a good one. All righty. Bye-bye. One of the fastest growing applications for 3D printing is producing accurate splints quickly and efficiently. 
hard splints, soft splints, and even bilaminar splints, those are the ones that are hard on the outside and soft on the inside, are being made every day by labs that offer additive technology. Whitmix has created Verisplint OS, a popular 3D printed resin that is rigid, durable, and affordable. This popular resin was the first 510K accepted splint material that is transparent, biocompatible, and polishes to a high clear shine. All of this in a low cost, averaging between $5 to $6 per splint. If you'd like more information about Verisplint OS, visit Whitmix's website at whitmix.com or call 1-800-626-5651. And of course, as always, we appreciate your support of the podcast, Whitmix. A huge thanks to Jim for taking the time out of his busy schedule to talk with Elvis and I on the podcast. I remember going out there, I'd say probably two years ago, and Jim actually came to our hotel, picked us up, took us out on his yacht, wined and dined us, and it was just a super amazing experience, not only him, but his whole team. And they were just so open to sharing and letting us know what they were doing and how they were doing it, that anybody that gets the chance to go out and see that laboratory, you should go for it because it was amazing. Did he pick you up personally? Like he drove yes. his car? What kind of car did Jim have? Oh, he had like one of 20, a fleet of 20. <laughs> it was just a very large, probably a Tahoe that I can remember. And then he came back in a, in a van. So I think he's got like 20 or 30 cars. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> so make sure you guys check out his book, Constant Change. It's coming out December 8th. There's a link on the episode show notes to get it from Amazon. There are not many books written about business success in our industry. And I know Elvis and I look forward to reading this one about Jim Glidewell's story. So check it out, guys. Yeah, I don't think I've ever pre-ordered a book, but this one I've had pre-ordered for a while and I'm pretty excited (laughs) for it. Yeah, me too. Can't wait. Awesome. That's all we got for you. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. What else you got to do, huh? Yeah. (laughs)